welcome to episode 232 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. This show was published on Tuesday, 17th of December, 2019. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA, where you'll always find a great selection of products at amazing prices with unparalleled customer service. For more information, just go to jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. Hey everybody, it's David from the Fredcast Cycling Podcast at www.thefredcast.com. I'm one of the hosts and producers of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. For show notes, links, and all sorts of other information, please visit our website at www.the-spokesmen.com. And now, here are the spokesmen. Hi there, I'm Carlton Reed, and on this episode of the Spokesman Podcast, I'm talking bike share with Andy Baynow. Andy is the vice chair of American Planning Association's new urbanism division and chair of the Institute of Transportation Engineers Transportation Planning Council. Phew, that was a long one. Uh, anyway, he's also a mobility as a service geek, and that's mass, of course. Uh, and we touch upon that in the show. But we're mainly chatting about his new book on bike sharing. Andy, welcome to the show. Welcome to uh, the Spokesman Cycling podcast. Now, uh, before we get into your book, and that's what we're going to be talking about, your bike share book, let's talk about Andy. So, so who are you? What do you do? Tell me a, a, a kind of like a, you can be as, as long as brief as you like here, but give me a thumbnail sketch of, of, of you. I'm looking for people in the context of, of this program. I'm looking to help people live happy, healthy lifestyles. And, and I, it sounds flippant. I don't mean that in a just everyone's going to feel happy all the time. But I've been fascinated for a long time about the connection between an overlap between the built environment and how people behave. Um, I'm not a mental health expert. I'm not a um, I'm not somebody that understands the science of the body, why we are the way we are, or how our how our brains work and and how things can make us smile. Um, but I have been in the transportation business for over 20 years, and I've seen over the years how the work that I do either makes things worse or makes things better. And same for the industry around me. So. Um, who am I? I'm a person that likes to make up true stories. Um, I, <laughs> I enjoy people. I like people watching. Um, I made a couple of people. I've got two wonderful teenage boys, uh, Drew and Aaron, who I hope will be more propaganda artists uh, about um, whatever, it, whatever it is that their path leads towards. I, I think both of them are going to end up doing some type of artistic work, which excites me. And you, you dedicated the book to them, didn't you? I saw that. I did, yes. Um, yeah, I the last book that I did, Emerging Trends in Transportation Planning, was uh, <laughs> was to my dad, uh, who he's in. He was in the transportation business for decades before retiring, and uh, a couple years ago. And like any teenage boy, when when I was my kid's age, I just assumed I'm never going to do the type of work that my dad does because he's my dad. Why would I follow in his footsteps? I'm going to do something completely different. And then 
I ended up going to get a civil engineering degree that he helped pay for and then started in traffic engineering. And then over the years, got closer and closer to his type of work with mass transportation. And uh, at some point in time, we kept running into each other that would say, oh, that's an unusual last name. Do you know this other Baino? And of course Mm -hmm. we did. So um, yeah, fascinating in that sense. So when it came time to actually publish something, uh, I, I was looking back at or thinking back on my career and realizing, wow, I did not understand fully as a young professional just how much my dad was pulling for me, which was, it, I guess it's the type of thing that you see with age, that the kind of thing that a young man might not necessarily see, but as you get older, uh, you start picking up on those things. So yeah, and then come coming forward uh, around this time, putting thoughts together around bicycling, bicycling infrastructure, and bike share. Um, one of the things that I'm constantly thinking about, whether it's walkable or bikeable infrastructure, is the ability or inability for little people to be able to move around. So I, as I thought back and was looking through pictures of um, my then little guys uh, having to hang on my hand or be nearby crossing a street and just teaching them what I saw as obvious, like, here's why this intersection is really comfortable to walk across. Here's why this sidewalk's comfortable. Here's why we feel miserable right now and why our heads are on a swivel and we're constantly uh, in a panic. And so since, since they are very aware of my biases and they've been a part of that kind of um, thinking out loud exercise of the, the connection between the built environment and how we, how we are as humans, uh, I thought, of course, of course, I need to have this for them. So you mentioned a minute ago uh, mass transportation, but there's also mass transportation, M-A-A-S, so mobility as a service, which I, I see from your profile you're into as well. So, I mean, I've had um, the founders of, of, of mass uh, on on the show before, but you give, give me your profile of, of how you consider um, mobility as a service working and how it fits into bicycling. Yeah, good question. Um, and I'm glad that you connect those two because I, I definitely think that um, that bicycling and in particular bike share is an important part. I mean, if we c- the, the play on words, I suppose, would be mass appeal. Um, I would define mobility as a service as... Um, something that really has three key ingredients. And I don't think that there's anything newsworthy or shocking about what I think the three ingredients are. Um, but it's, I think it's important that there are these three rather than just it's car share or it's bike share. I think, I think mobility as a service is something where a customer can, with a single app, plan their trip and the route that they take, the path, and then the second thing is they can choose from a variety of vehicles. So that might be a scooter, a bicycle, a car, a bus, a train, a plane, you know, whatever the thing is, and that payment collection is taken care of all within that same interface. So there are a whole lot of aspects of that, of mobility as a service and public and private combinations and big brands and little brands. But I think that's the core. That's what's important is it's it's that very customer-focused transportation opportunity. It's customer-focused in the sense that you want someone to be able to easily see all their options and make all the decisions. 
And then, you know, thinking ahead to somebody with my bias that wants walkable, bikeable streets. And I, and I know that's the same for you. Um, bike share is, is a huge part of that because we want bike share, uh, the, the lower speed city friendly opportunities. We want that to be an easy and convenient choice for customers. I mean, we, we talk a lot about, oh, I certainly talk a lot about Paris and we talk about, um, the, the changes that have come from there. I, I absolutely put a lot of that down to Vélib. I think the changes that, that have now become apparent in Paris and that they are amazing changes with a whole lot of uh, bike paths and, and, and banning cars from certain major roads, etc. That has all come after uh, Vélib pretty much uh, was out there um, kind of making the way for all these other changes. Would you say that's fair? Would you say that that's happened in North America too? Or, or, or is it something that's still to come? I think in the denser urban environments, you're absolutely right. Um, I think... It, I think it could be, it could also, you could also make a case that um, the bus in the traditional sense, not, not necessarily the traditional vehicle that looks like a bus, but mass transit fixed route buses could also be one of those backbones. Um, I, I do think, though, that the bicycling is a key ingredient in that. And it's, um, unfortunately, it's not as robust in North America uh, I think that's going to change in the very near future as connected and autonomous technology takes off. Um, I'm, I know I'm on the fringe of my uh, fellow members of the all-powerful bike lobby when I, <laughs> when I support things like autonomous technology, but I really do think that that's going to help get people in and back to, uh, or in from and back to further remote areas. It's going to help people that are in less dense areas in suburbia connect to transit lines, connect to bike share opportunities uh, where they don't have them right now. So we won't have to have, you know, a a rural-ish county have 5,000 bicycles so that there's enough to reach everybody. We'll be able to bring people in front with autonomous shuttles and, and other forms of shared transport that, again, are hopefully part of mobility as a service offerings and get them in closer to that bike share. But yeah, that bike share, I think, is is critical. That almost, I mean, I, I would pretty much agree with you there, as long as the, the autonomous vehicles didn't have to interact with either the pedestrians or the cyclists. So it almost sounds as though you're talking about exterior to the city hubs, where the autonomous vehicles come in from the outside, drop at a hub, and then you go on to other forms of mass transport. Is that is that what you're talking about? Or do you, you envisage uh, autonomous vehicles interacting in the same space as bicyclists and with pedestrians? I think what you described is ideal. Um, and I think about it in terms of, uh, I mean, I generally frame mobility in the, in terms of freedom. That's one of my biases. I want people to, to have the freedom to move around using whatever mode is available to them and what they prefer. So walking being the primary, the ultimate if people are able to walk, they should be able to walk. If people, and then the next step from that would be walking on the seat of a bicycle, right? Pedaling. Um, so those are critical. Those are the fundamental modes of transport. And and I think they should be absolutely provided for. Um, I want people to have the freedom to choose those things. I also want people to have the freedom, if they so choose, to purchase a big pickup truck or some other 
um, personal automobile. The difference is where, where I say this issue of freedom doesn't mean you then have the freedom to aggress on everyone else. So if I have friends over and they're wearing muddy boots outside because it's raining, I absolutely want them to be able to wear those muddy boots if that's the best part of their outfit to get to where I live. But when they come inside, they don't exercise the freedom to wear whatever they want. They don't then trudge around the living room with their muddy boots on. They leave them at the door. I think it's that same kind of thing with motor vehicles in dense urban areas. So I, I think it's an absolutely compatible kind of belief system to to promote freedom of mobility and say, in a dense area, the cars don't belong in this little area. I mean, at, at some point, we all agree that you shouldn't drive on a sidewalk. I, I don't think it's a stretch then to back up a little bit further and say, these places where these these intersections in, in urbanized areas, they used to be a big deal. They weren't just where cars were turning left and right. This is where you had the exchange of ideas and commerce and all those good things that we know about cities for thousands of years. So I think to the extent that we can bring people to and from those areas um, with different types of autonomy, whether it's shuttles or or trains or smaller cars or pods. Um, I, I think those details will work out as the technology evolves. But I, I completely agree that uh, when you get to those lower speed environments, you just it's it's dangerous. We, we know that we're introducing danger when we mix those um, the speed differentials. So, Andy, are you into carrot or stick, a mix of the two or, or should there never be stick? Um, I think my stick looks like a carrot. Um, I, I think there needs, I think there needs to be both. I think it, it also depends. I mean, I, uh, I, <laughs> I enjoy sometimes taking, uh, people's comments out of t- context. Uh, so I, I'm very aware that, uh, I could say there should be both. And then I, I myself will say, here's a specific opportunity where a stick just isn't going to work. Um, so I guess we could, that could go that could be applied in different ways you could talk about policy issues you could talk about when you're dealing with private property like if it's a university campus that's that's privately owned and operated you know everything on there is private um but i think in general if if you're talking about changing behavior and how we make things how we make this stuff happen if you're a local government and and this is true. I can say this definitely through most of North America. I'm not sure that how true this is in uh, in European cities, but throughout North America and especially the U.S., local governments generally control their own streets. So, I think it's perfectly reasonable expectation if you're the local public works department and it's your job to provide safe streets, clean streets. Then, if you see something that needs to be done some way to modify your street network to make the streets safer and more accessible and more accommodating for all your people, all ages and abilities, that sort of thing, then you do it. And I think then the way that you communicate with people is not to say, hey, we're going to put out a vote and ask everyone, do you want safer streets? If so, then check this box and we'll go ahead and put some safe bike infrastructure. If you don't care about safe streets, check this other box and we'll just leave it as it is, 12 foot wide lanes and 45 mile an hour speed limit. I, I think if you're the local public works department, it's it's your job to make those things safe. So that's not a top down kind of oppressive mentality towards infrastructure. That's those people signing on uh, 
to to make their city a great place. And if the residents who don't who live there don't appreciate the way that the roads are being handled, then there are a bunch of ways to speak up about that. Um, I, I think where we misstep with this the idea of changing travel behavior is. It's it's kind of a stutter step where we'll go forward. When I say we, I mean advocates of low speed streets and bicycling infrastructure and walking infrastructure. Um, we'll put forward some ideas that we've seen online or we've seen experienced in other cities, and then we'll quickly step back when a local business person says, "I think car parking is the key. If you lose any car parking spots, we're going to lose business." And then we're very quick to pull back and say, oh, 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 sorry, <laughs> didn't, didn't want to offend anybody. Don't, don't worry what we said about the bike lanes. It's not going to happen. We're, we're not going to put any bike corrals or bike share systems in here. So I think, you know, all the way back to your, your question, I, I think it's, it's both. It's, uh, you, need to have, you need to have policies if you're the local government to make your streets safe. And then you need to go ahead and take the initiative to do it. Uh, if, if you make bicycling and walking easy and convenient, we know people will do that. We know people inside of a shopping mall, for example, will walk extraordinary lengths. So it's not the walking that's the thing. But we can put in tons of bike lanes. We can put in wider sidewalks, et cetera, et cetera. But if there are people in these you know, 14-foot-high cars out there at the moment still able to, to use the streets that we're all mixing with, well, that infrastructure is not going to work. So that the stick has got to be used and made quite big because it there almost seems to be like a constitutional right in the US to drive everywhere. And uh, if, if that's the thoughts of lots of people, that I, I should be able to drive everywhere, it's going to be incredibly tough to encourage people into all these forms of, of other forms of transport if you're not using that big stick and actually getting people out of those cars by force. Yeah, you're right. And I think, um, well, and, and maybe it's not out of the cars, maybe it's just how they're operated. I think we, as Americans especially, misuse the term freedom, uh, and we misuse the phrase individual liberty. I think more Americans need to consider the non-aggression principle. You can purchase let's say a Hummer, you know, a really large, oversized, ridiculous vehicle, purchase your own vehicle, you have the right to purchase that vehicle. If you live in downtown Washington, DC, you're not going to be able to drive that thing very far, it's going to be really challenging to navigate anywhere. Um, And it could be that that the local government where you work decides there are certain streets that are off limits to cars, you don't have the right to drive that thing 50 miles an hour on 25 mile an hour streets. You don't have the right to speed through because then you're aggressing on other people. You're introducing a dangerous situation to people around you. So yes, you have a freedom to purchase a thing, but you don't have the freedom to use it however you want if it's going to aggress on others. And then that same line of thinking can be extended towards, you know, what what type of pollution comes out the back of it? Is there some kind of air quality control in place? So I think there are a lot of things around this idea of non-aggression principle that are completely compatible with individual liberty. It's just we like to abuse that phrase. So whatever it happens to be at the moment that we want, we say, well, I have the freedom to have that or I have the freedom to, to say no to that. Um, and it's we, we have to think beyond ourselves. I mean, there, 
yes, individual liberty and treat people around you well. Andy, you're the chair of the Institute of Transportation Engineers, transportation, that's a big, long word, a big, long phrase, uh, Transportation Planning Council, I-T-E-T-P-C. Wow, that's that's a long meeting just to get people around the table around that. Um, So given you're the chair of that, but given the fact that you're, for one, to, to kind of like shorten it down into your people friendly transportation planner, how unusual are you? now or do you think that where you've been talking from from for 20 odd years is now coming into the mainstream in your profession well i guess it depends if you're asking if i'm normal it depends who you ask um in terms of the the ite membership um one thing that i found very interesting and i've i've told other the others in ite this publicly this is not some kind of uh secret conversation that is now being publicly revealed but there was a period of time when i was seriously considering ending my membership both with the institute of transportation engineers and american planning association and similar reasons and it was both i was frustrated with both organizations that seemed to be more concerned about self-preservation, and they were just stuffy environments. That was my perception, and that was my personal experience for a period of time. Um, And I was approached by one of the leaders who asked if I would help by participating in the Transportation Planning Council. And the conversation went kind of like this. Uh, Andy, there are a bunch of people that I've talked with that have expressed similar concerns to you, but as, as your concerns they don't say them publicly because they're afraid of consequences. And so there are a lot of these people out there. They just need somebody to help pull them together. So that was kind of, that's, that was the beginning of a conversation that was fascinating to me. And then kind of (laughs) sucked me right back into ITE um, because I, I was starting to see, okay, there are, there are other people who where the scales are coming off their eyes. Like me, uh, I didn't, I don't have my biases about infrastructure and freedom of mobility because I'm so smart. I asked a load of dumb questions over the years so that my bosses didn't have to do my work for me. And as I was asking all these dumb questions, why this, why that, why not roundabouts, all these kinds of things, I kept hearing over and over again, the answers were, well, we do this because that's why we, we've always done this. Our, our father's fathers did this. And so we continue. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I saw this opportunity where other people were starting to ask those questions, but very quietly because, you know, they're concerned about employment. They're wondering if my, it, what happens if I question my boss? Uh, how do I question my boss? How can I do these things respectfully? How can I, um, how can I work for a particular client that is insisting on a certain type of design when I know that design is dangerous? Um, and so these kinds of questions were coming up more and more. And, and I was definitely not alone in that. I am not alone in that. There are a lot of people that are asking these kinds of questions. And I credit in large part the internet. I mean, they, I say all the time, I tell my kids this regularly, the internet is amazing. It's fantastic. It's, it's, um, you see people pile on about how, uh, how social media can be toxic. And there are aspects of it that can be. But if you, if you just keep your attention in the right direction and, and put those other you know, close the door on some of the uh, darker areas. It's fantastic. You can connect with anybody and share ideas all the time. So like you and I can talk about places all around the world that are altering how people move around in dense urban areas and people are exploring ways to um, 
to convert buses into small modular autonomous shuttles. And we can see these things and share these things with others in a, in a new kind of way. Uh, and then coming back to membership of, of ITE, you can see, all right, here's an organization where the mission is how do we advance transportation and serve the public interest. And so that's what members of the Transportation Planning Council are thinking about is how do we as planners, how do we how do we approach technology? How do we approach mobility as a service? How do we approach things like bike share and you know whatever the whatever the old and new things are? How do we do all of this in a way that serves the public interest? That's customer focused. Okay, so similar question, coming at it in a slightly different way. Transportation engineers, as a body, are getting younger because the older guys are very naturally retiring. So do you think that refreshing of the gene pool, if you like, will just naturally over time lead to changes to people-friendly infrastructure because the younger guys who are coming through the industry now are going to be much more in tune with your kind of points of view compared to, you know, what you're saying about, well, that's how my father used to do it, you know, 20 years ago that's how you know my the people who used to do this job used to do it so the new thinking is going to change stuff i understand what you're saying and i don't think it says it's i don't think it's that easy um i would like to say yes i've i've encountered plenty of the stereotypical millennial who has ideas about terrible infrastructure. I have, so just anecdotally, I think this is what's going on. Mm-hmm. Young people come out of school and start working as transportation engineers, traffic engineers, city planners. They are excited about what they learned in school. They may have been exposed to Jane Jacobs and other people who now are embraced by planners, but you know, decades ago, these were people who were at direct odds with city planners and traffic engineers. So they come out of the university inspired, excited, they're going to make things better, they're going to get more more butts on bikes, they're going to get people riding the bus again, they're going to they're going to retrofit suburbia. And then they start working and they have they're working with nice people who say, "Look, that's that's a good idea, it's just not practical." And then they see project after project where the clients are saying, "Yeah, we don't want that. We want this over here. We need to widen from four lanes to six lanes." And it's and there are what seem to be convincing arguments that that's what it's got to be. You, you know, you've got to serve level of service. Um, you, you need less vehicular delay, that sort of thing. And so then what happens is the young people coming out of school are trained by Gen Xers my age and then even older, so, you know, boomers are still on the scene. Uh, so you've got, you've got mentors who still have the very uh, car-centric design in mind and they're training the young people. So I think it's a mixture. That's not to say that they're completely squashed. Um, some of them I think have been, but I don't think it's as, as easy or, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I just, I, I think it's, I think it's still going to be, a, we still have this challenge, um, of persuading people of all ages that this is doable. Um, one one thing that is a little bit exciting and, and probably counterintuitive, it, it was to me anyway, is, I keep encountering people that are closer towards uh, closer to retirement who are very open minded to walkable bikeable infrastructure and my feeling is that's because they have less pressure they 
they care less about what other people think. So if you're 65 years old and still on the job, you don't really care as much if someone rolls their eyes at you about your idea for a protected bike lane as when you were 25 years old and you're worried about what everybody thinks. You want to make sure that you stay employed, right? So I, it's it's um, it's interesting how the generations are viewing um, new transportation opportunities. And do the manuals also have to change, not just the personnel? It's the fact you've got these very strict design manuals which tell you you know, all sorts of different things. And if you, if you, you can't divert away from these things. So is that something that also takes an awfully long time to change? I think manuals themselves do take a long time to change. Yes. And, and that, and that's one of the reasons why I had so many issues with professional organizations is it seemed like they, part of their existence was to simply put out, um, these humongous doorstop textbooks that, um, that were dull to read and terrible on the environment. <laughs> you know, they, they were methods to make our infrastructure worse. Um, so I think, and this is, this is me speaking, not a professional organization that I am affiliated with uh, speaking, but I think in a lot of places, may, perhaps every place, just start with what you know is painfully obvious. What, when I walk around with my kids in certain areas, they'll say, I mean, they're, they're teenagers now, but when they were young, they could point out easily, dad, I can't cross that street. And they were right. Or dad, I, I don't think I should ride my bike on this sidewalk. It's too bumpy. Um, kids get this stuff. You don't have to be a traffic engineer to understand intersection operations. And you don't have to be a, a licensed engineer um, to, to design a comfortable bike path. In fact, it's probably beneficial if you're not, if you've never seen a manual and you just say, you know what, my bike is about this wide, my elbows stick out here. Uh, I need some more space than that. Like you could figure out pretty quickly, a novice could, uh, how wide a comfortable bicycle lane should be. So in terms of the manuals, yes, I think, um, if there's one thing you should, you should delay in your professional work. It's cracking open a manual. It's just start with what's common sense, what makes sense for people to move around. And then you can easily back check. Is this legal? Oh yeah, it is legal. turns out it is quite legal to, to have a 10 foot wide lane. So let's get into your book. So we've, we've, we've talked about you. Let's now talk about uh, the thing that you've just written. So I'll actually, well, it's, it's bike share is the, that's a pretty simple title. But I'll then just read out uh, the subhead and the subtitle, and that's site planning, business models, ridership, and regulations, and I like this bit, of the most uh, most misunderstood form of modern transportation. So when you say most misunderstood form of modern transportation, is that bike share itself, or is that cycling, or is that both? Both. Uh, my my focus was on bike share, but I'd say, I'd say both. Um, I was getting a little bit of flack for this on Twitter, but I'll stand by it. Um, the the point of it is uh we you know you you talk with anybody about about traffic and it, comedians have been pointing this out for <laughs> forever that anybody anybody that has a driver's license is a traffic engineer and that's certainly true everybody has these ideas about how modern transportation works what we need what we don't need now with ride sharing services like Uber and Lyft it's it's even um, more pervasive that everybody's an expert. And yet, when it comes to bicycling, it's still kind of 
the fringe recreational thing. And then even when people visit a major metropolitan area in the U.S., for example, uh, and experience bike share for themselves, and then they come back home and they talk about it, it's it's kind of like it's part of the experience of, you know, I went, I stayed in this Airbnb, I used this bike share, it was pretty cool, and then I did this other thing. So it still feels like recreation um, if, if you're not in an area where you're, you're able to see this regularly. So in terms of bike share, that's what I'm thinking about why it's, it's a misunderstood form of transportation. It's, it's also things like, uh, this assumption that if you put any number of bicycles out to be shared, then it should either work or not. Like if if it works, then people like Andy were right. And if nobody uses the 10 bicycles in the city with a million people, well, bike share was, bike share doesn't work. That guy was wrong. Um, it's just, people don't understand its purpose that bicycling is transport and bike share, how it can, and, and then in certain ways, how it won't work. So that was my thinking along this. I, I, I realized that if you're a traffic engineer or, uh, some type of city planner, maybe, maybe you review site plans that you may know already a lot about this. You may be very familiar with some of the things I reference in here, like NACTO uh, or some other design guides. Um, one of the reasons that I wrote this, though, was that I kept hearing over and over and over again, and not necessarily by professionals, the, the same several questions around bike share. And so what I wanted to do was put together basically a frequently asked question, you know, my responses to the FAQ for these things that come up over and over and over again without getting into an academic exercise where I'm researching on my own and then referencing um, specific data sets, but just getting right to the point of the issues that people bring up. So your book, do you think it's mainly about docked bike shares? So cities are going to be putting in uh, this form of, of infrastructure probably subsidized or or do you see bike share uh coexisting with the the chinese model of of bike share you know the, the mo bikes of this world you know which which in some ways have come and gone but they're they're still there in in some cities and potentially littering the sidewalk is still a, a concept that that troubles many cities so what kind of bike share do you think you're, you're talking about in your book? So good, that's a good question. And I, I touched on um, each of them. Um, docked as in kind of the, the original heavy anchor, uh, bolted into the ground stations, kiosks where the payment is, and then dockless where it's just a free-for-all, the free roaming, and then the hybrids, which we're seeing much more of where um, the technology is in the bicycle, but they're being parked at hubs. So when I first started jotting down ideas for this, we still in the US had thousands and thousands of the pure free roaming, uh, the Chinese model all around. And then by the time, you know, by even like right now, today, end of October, 2019, they still exist, but they're, they look very different. And the companies that operate them are thinking about the operations in a very different way. It's they're they're not so much um, on the market exposure uh, angle that they were when they first burst onto the scene. Um, I mean, it was it wasn't that long ago when all of a sudden everybody in the U.S. was saying, "Whoa, there's bikes everywhere!" 
And then a few months later, we were all going, oh, there's bikes everywhere. Because <laughs> like you said, it was litter. It was, they weren't, they weren't useful. Um, what I think, I mean, I, I touch on each of these. I touch on um, the different, the, the trade-offs associated with each type of model. I think for the future of bike share um, in the U.S. anyway, and, and I, I mean, I would, I would assume that this is true just generally because it's, I think people um, react to the environment around them in similar ways wherever we are in the world, even in the really, really dense environments. Um, we like things that look nice. We, we generally don't like to see piles of junk and we generally don't like to see um, someone's yard with debris in it or a place of business or work or worship with junk piled up around it. Um, we kind of like things neat. I mean, even when people park their cars in a gravel lot, they tend to park them in an orderly way, even though, you know, they might be at an apple orchard uh, and and those, they still kind of organize where they park. So I think the future of bike share for successful bike share, um, I, I would go further than say, I think I would say I like evidence shows we know that these things need to be organized. So if if I'm going to use, if I'm going to be part of a fleet of shared bicycles, I need to know that if I walk down certain streets, certain corridors, it's predictable, it's visible. I know where to find bicycles and I don't have to pull out my phone, throw out the thoughts and prayers hashtag that I'm going to find a bike somewhere nearby. So I think that free roaming model is behind us. Um, th- They'll exist, yes, but they'll be the exception. The future is we've got this amazing technology. Batteries are getting smaller and lighter weight. So you can have so much tech inside of a bicycle itself, you know, built in the frames that we can track them as if they were free roaming. But when it comes time to park them, they're organized. And then now with mobility as a service um, starting to evolve, we'll be able to have these shared mobility hubs where you can have the the organized way to park the shared bike. You'll also for a time anyway, have shared scooters, the mopeds, the autonomous pods, you know, whatever the thing is, a train station, you'll have car parking. So I think organization is, is going to be key. But that was my next question, actually. And that is <clears throat> your book is called bike share, but the, the up and coming thing or not the up and coming it's, it's absolutely there. And millennials, everybody is, is on these things in, in the cities where they are. And almost, I'm saying almost, almost uh, bike shares old hat because you've got uh, Bird and Lime and the other companies offering scooters, which you just hop on and they're like a, a little car because you just, you, just, you just press a button and off you whiz. Whereas a bicycle, even uh, a bike share bike with... Uh, electric power on you still have to pedal so that's kind of old-fashioned do you not think when you've got the birds and the limes and the the whiz bang scooters out there in some ways it is old-fashioned it and at the same time it's not going anywhere um the, the bicycle i mean is not going anywhere i think electric scooters have a place i'm a i'm a fan i'm a huge fan i mean like i said before of choice i want people to have freedom of mobility choice so there are places where scooters are probably going to be around for a long long time um i think controlled campuses like universities or big corporate centers those are quite logical um 
certain downtown cores, but then there are a lot of places where it just doesn't make sense. Um, if I, it, this is coming from somebody who rides scooters when they're available. Uh, I, I bikes and scooters. Um, one of my challenges on a scooter is if, if I want to be carrying something in my hand and, uh, you know, motorists put earmuffs on right now. Um, if I want to have my, my drink that I've got, you know, the to-go cup from the restaurant at lunch, and I need to hold that in one hand while I'm riding. I'm not going to do that on a scooter because it's a thumb throttle. It's too wobbly. I'm going to fall. If I'm on a bike, that's easy peasy. You know, a bike is bigger. It's more stable. You can carry groceries on it if you need to. There's just, there's so much about the bicycle that is a lot more practical um, than a scooter. So a scooter has a good purpose. It, it fills a role, um, but it's not the same. It's, it's compatible with and different from the bicycle. Now, here's the, the, the question that I know troubles uh, a lot of cities because uh, they've got various rules and regulations against this in, in, in their, their state, their country, whatever, and that helmets. So where do you stand on the use of bicycle helmets for bike share systems in the full knowledge that an awful lot of cities who've, who've put bike share in have discovered it didn't really work that well because they're forcing people to wear helmets? Yeah, this is, uh, <laughs> this is the, it's probably the biggest one. It's probably the biggest elephant in the room. I think we can talk about politics, religion, and sex more freely than we can helmets. Uh, that said, I'm happy to add to the list. We can talk about all four of those if you like. Uh, I, I don't think anybody should ever be forced to wear a bicycle helmet. I think we, um, the trap that we fall into, and this is especially true in the U S and I know Australian cities are suffering from this right now too. Um, we have, we have this idea, this perceived safety of wearing a foam hat, um, and, and people, you'll hear this all the time, and I don't try to argue with this, an anecdote about, well, a bicycle, a bicycle helmet saved my life. Let me tell you how. Maybe it did. Maybe it didn't. Uh, according to, to the science behind how those foam hats are constructed, probably didn't save your life. But I'm not going to tell a person, don't wear the foam hat with the little pieces of plastic on it. I'm not going to say that. Um, if a person feels more comfortable doing that, then by all means do that. We know that when a government agency forces a person to wear a certain type of clothing when they ride a bicycle, that fewer people ride the bicycle. And then I think the bigger issue, the kind of the ground level issue really for this is it's not about what you're wearing. It's not about um, the the reflectivity of your shirt or the type of light, um, the hand signals that you use at an intersection or whatever's on your head. The, the fundamental issue is we have high-speed car traffic mixing with bicycle traffic and mixing with pedestrian foot traffic. Those things shouldn't be mixing. So if we keep designing streets where it's easy for a motorist and comfortable to drive 40, 45 miles an hour in the same environment where people are bicycling at about 12 miles per hour, 15 miles per hour, we're going to always have a problem. Um, I mean, and another issue, it's not helmets, but the same kind of thing that pops up over and over again is distracted walking. 
or as most of us call it, walking. That distracted walking isn't the danger. Speeding drivers are the danger. So um, I think the cult of high visibility, uh, mothers against helmetless children, these are they're good intentions, but they're misguided. Fix the streets, make the streets good for riding bicycles. And then you'll see places like Copenhagen where, you know, even in the miserable weather by by U.S. standards, people are riding all the time. I mean, I, I say the best protection um, against, you know, the elements when you're riding bikes on, as far as your head goes is wear good hair gel. That's what I do. <laughs> I didn't see that in your book. <laughs> That, that's coming next. That's coming in the uh, 365, uh, uh, the, the tweet a day book. That'll be next. Oh, okay. So who's your book for, Andy? Who, who are you hoping to, to read your book and who are you hoping to, to actually benefit from your book? I would love for people who, I, I, what, something I, that I included in the beginning of the book was, if this provokes you to challenge one thing that you thought was true, then I feel like I, I've done something good. Even if you don't end up agreeing with something that I put, because I on purpose, you know, like you mentioned about helmets, I I on purpose include that in here and a little bit behind it and then some resources around helmets. Um, I want people to challenge what they already to be- believe so that they're stronger in their own belief or they realize, oh, you know what? I don't I'm not sure where I formed that belief, but now that I now that I consider this other point of view, I, I'm leaning this way. Uh if that just happens one time, then then I'm happy. And then the other type of person, if you're just if you're asking these questions because you're intrigued and this comes up, you know, bike share, especially thanks to the dockless boom in the U in the US, especially where they're you know, they were everywhere. So many people, it's a mainstream topic, bike share. Uh, three years ago, I had to explain to people what a dockless bike was or or what a bike share program, how that could operate in a mid-sized city. Now people just mm. they get it. They know what bike share is. So if this book can help you have one good conversation with somebody to try to bring, you know, introduce bike share or expand bike share in your community, then I'm going to be thrilled. So those are the types of people that people that are that have some kind of active interest. Either they want to sharpen an idea and and challenge the idea, or they're looking for an opportunity to make their community better. And so, you know, whether that angle is uh, public health or strong local economy or freedom for your kids, um, then that's that's the kind of person that I want to read this. And. When somebody who's been inspired to to put a system in, because uh, they've read your book, um, and then they start putting stations in, or they put in the, the hybrid models, um, they're going to look at where this bicycle usage is high right now. That seems pretty obvious. And then they might ignore certain areas. So they might ignore uh, the non-middle class areas. Uh, minority areas so how do you get a city to put in an incredibly fair bike share system that isn't just in these certain locations where they think it ought to be that's a good question and it's something that that planners have been wrestling with for several years um for 
pretty much every types of service. Uh, the, the same the same conversation has gone on for many years around transit, around, around mass transit and the bus, um, where bus stops are and where they aren't, uh, whether or not there's sidewalks around bus stops. So this the issue of um, giving all people access is really important. Um, I'm not the first person to say this, but I like saying it, that the bicycle is the great social equalizer. I mean, we look back at pictures. It's great with places like archive.org to be able to see um, pictures from 100 years ago where you could tell just from the clothing in the pictures that very poor and very wealthy people were side by side on bicycles and walking in city streets. Um, and it's fantastic to see that. Um, so now the challenge, the challenge, like you said, is actually implementing. So the idea has been around, um, people have talked around this idea. How do you make it accessible to, to all these different groups? And I think there are a couple of different issues that have to be, um, worked out, uh, head on. One of them is who's operating the bike share program. And one of the things, you know, I describe different business models of bike share. I don't say, I don't put a judgment value on this one is good and this other one is wrong. Um, you just have to understand wherever you operate and however you operate, you're going to have a different way of reaching different communities. Um, and, and especially if it's a, a low income area. Um, so if, for example, you're a local government that operates its own bike share, if you're the city or the county that's responsible for locating the bike share stations and making sure that the bikes are there and all that sort of thing, you have to understand that just like mass transit, it's not going to pay for itself. If you already know, that's just math, right? If you know that this is a low income neighborhood or a moderate income neighborhood, there's just not going to be enough usage. So you might do things like, um, for certain, you know, if you live in a certain apartment complex or, um, however you do it. if you if you come from a if you go to the community college and you show your id you get discounted passes you can there've been uh, measures in place for a long time to have that sort of system in place discounted passes or you enter in a, a code on the back of the bike and you get free access and those types of things can be done without any stigma nobody has to know that you're paying less than the person next to you so you can have <laughs> you can have the wealthiest person in your neighborhood check out a bike for $8 an hour and then the person next to them is getting it for free. And the two of them don't have to know what each other pays or doesn't pay. So there are methods to do that. Um, what what happens, I think, where we keep falling short in the U.S. is we go back and forth between who's operating and who's making the decisions. Is it public or is it private? And so a public agency will say, we want you, the private uh, company that's delivering bike share, we want you to service all these areas which of course makes sense, right? This is, these are all members of the community. We want you to cover all of these neighborhoods and we want you to stay in business for three years. We have this contract with you. Now, if you're the private business, you want ridership. You, it doesn't matter to you what type of person's riding, you know, what their personal background is. You want people to ride. It's good for business. Um, if you're in a neighborhood where you're just not generating revenue if you're, then it doesn't make sense to fill it with bicycles. So what cities need to understand is if it's, if coverage is the is the important issue, which it is an important issue, then you have to take measures to make sure whether it's um, your contract covers for that, so you the city are subsidizing it, or there's some other way to make this work for the business because the most of the companies, if you're dealing with this on a 
uh, on a private side where it's a private operator, they're not a charity. They have to make a profit. If they don't make a profit, then they can't build bicycles. They can't fix the bikes. They can't put them on the streets. Um, you know, they can't provide bike share. So it's, it is a challenge. Uh, I think the way that it has to get worked out is, is understanding and just talking frankly about what does it cost to operate bike share? Bike share is not free. Just like driving a car is not free. We have in our minds that it's free, but there are so many expenses behind um, anything that we do related to transportation. Uh, one of my reasons for being so optimistic, though, about bike share and bike share for for everyone, where whatever their socioeconomic background is, whatever um, whatever their origin or whichever neighborhood they happen to be living in uh, across the U.S. or you know anywhere where bike share is, is um, being part of mobility as a service to bring it full circle back to what you said at the beginning, having modes mixed together is far more profitable than one-offs. So it's much harder for 10 different companies to be competing for customers when they're all providing different modes. They all have different apps. They all have different service areas and fee structures. So if you're a customer your head's spinning. You you already have a handful of transportation apps. You don't want to have to download now a, a bunch of other ones. So the sooner we get to this 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 opportunity with an, a single app being able to access all these things: the public bus, the private bike share, the public bike share, um, the train, uh, food, all these things mixed together. The sooner, the better. And it's profitable for businesses when they can combine those different types of services. So it's an it's a, a perk for employees. So if you're a big employer in a certain area, um, you can offer these mobility packages to your employees where you're paying for the system. You're, you're chipping in month after month to access. Maybe it's a handful of cars and then also bikes and scooters and all these other all these other devices. But that's that's one way where we're going to be able to provide far more coverage um, for the underserved neighborhoods is being able to combine these modes together. Okay, thank you. Uh, now, where can people get the book? And uh, how do people find you on on the internet? Thanks for thanks for asking. It's easy to find me online. Um, the book is, uh, I made a short link that's, that's easy to find, but it's available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. If you search uh, bike share book. It'll pop up in both of those. Shockingly, there was only one other. Um, and then this is the first pocket size one. It's a digital one. So it, it's going to, it's going to fit in, um, in phones and tablets of all sizes and abilities. So it's perfect. Um, you can find me at andybano.com. That's one a- easy way. Um, you could also find me on Twitter. Uh, and then the the short length for the book is bit.ly slash bike share book. Thanks to Andy Baino there. He just gave the links to his book and his social media, but I'll also place them on the show notes at the-spokesmen.com. And on the next episode, I'll be talking with academic John Stalen. Meanwhile, get out there and ride.